Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 9 The persistent yammer of a motor horn drew Martin to the window of the laboratory a late afternoon in February. He looked down on a startling roadster, all streamlines and cream paint with enormous headlights. He slowly made out that the driver, a young man in coffee-colored loose motor coat and hectic checked cap and intense neckwear, was Cliff Clawson, and that Cliff was beckoning. He hastened down, and Cliff cried, Oh boy, how do you like the boat? Do you diagnose this suit? Scotch heather, honest. Uncle Cliff has nabbed off a twenty-five buck a week job with commissions, selling autos. Boy, I was lost in your old medic school. I can sell anything to anybody. In a year, I'll be making eighty a week. Jump in, old son. I'm going to take you into the grand and blow you to the handsomest feed you ever stuffed into your skinny organism. The 38 miles an hour at which Cliff drove into Zenith was, in 1908, dismaying speed. Martin discovered a new Cliff. He was as noisy as ever, but more sure, glowing with schemes for immediately acquiring large sums of money. His hair, once bushy and greasy in front, tending to stick out jaggedly behind, was sleek now, and his face had the pinkness of massage. He stopped at the fabulous Grand Hotel with a jar of brakes. Before he left the car, he changed his violent yellow driving gauntlets for a pair of gray gloves with black stitching, which he immediately removed as he paraded through the lobby. He called the coat girl Sweetie, and at the dining-room door he addressed the head-waiter. "'Ah, Gus, how's the boy? How's the boy feeling tonight? How's the mucho famoso major domoso? Gus, want to make you acquainted with Dr. Aerosmith. Anytime the doc comes here, I want you to shake a leg and hand him out that well-known service, my boy, and give him anything he wants. And if he's broke, you charge it to me. "'Now, Gus, I want a nice little table for two with garage and hot and cold water. And wouldst fain have thy advice, Gustavus, on the oysters and whore-duffers and all the ingredients fair of a Messinan feast. Yes, sir, right this way, Mr. Clausen, breathed the head-waiter. Cliff whispered to Martin, I've got him like that in two weeks. You watch my smoke. While Cliff was ordering, a man stopped beside their table. He resembled an earnest traveling man who liked to get back to his suburban bungalow every Saturday evening. He was beginning to grow slightly bald, slightly plump. His rimless eyeglasses, in the midst of a round, smooth face, made him seem innocent. He stared about as though he wished he had someone with whom to dine. Cliff darted up, patted the man's elbow, and bawled, "'Ah, there, Babsky, old boy!' Feeding with anybody? Come join the Sporting Gents Association. All right, be glad to. Wife's out of town, said the man. Shake hands with Dr. Aerosmith. Mart, meet George F. Babbitt, the celebrated Zenith real estate king. Mr. Babbitt has just adorned his 34th birthday by buying his first benzene buggy from yours truly and begged to remain as always. It was, at least on the part of Cliff and Mr. Babbitt, a mirthful affair, and when Martin had joined them in cocktails, St. Louis beer, and highballs, he saw that Cliff was the most generous person now living, and Mr. George F. Babbitt a companion of charm. Cliff explained how certain he was, apparently his distinguished medical training had something to do with it, to be president of a motor factory, and Mr. Babbitt confided, you fellows are a lot younger than I am, eight, ten years, and you haven't learned yet, like I have, that where the big pleasure is, is in ideals and service and a public career. Now, just between you and me and the gatepost, my vogue doesn't lie in real estate, but in oratory. Fact, one time I planned to study law and go right in for politics. Just between ourselves, and I don't want this to go any farther— I've been making some pretty good affiliations lately, been meeting some of the rising young Republican politicians. 
Of course, a fellow has got to start in modestly. But I may say, sotto voce, that I expect to run for alderman next fall. It's practically only a step from that to mayor, and then to governor of the state. And if I find the career suits me, there's no reason why in ten or twelve years, say in 1918 or 1920, I shouldn't have the honor of representing the great state of Winnemac in Washington, D.C. In the presence of a Napoleon-like cliff and a Gladstone like George F. Babbitt, Martin perceived his own lack of power and business skill. And when he had returned to Mohalis, he was restless. Of his poverty he had rarely thought— but now, in contrast to Cliff's rich ease, his own shabby clothes and his pinched room seemed shameful. Part 2 A long letter from Leora, hinting that she might not be able to return to Zenith, left him the more lonely. Nothing seemed worth doing. In that listless state, he was mooning about the laboratory during elementary bacteriology demonstration hour when Gottlieb sent him to the basement to bring up six male rabbits for inoculation. Gottlieb was working 18 hours a day on new experiments. He was jumpy and testy. He gave orders like insults. When Martin came dreamily back with six females instead of males, Gottlieb shrieked at him, "'You are the worst fool that was ever in this lab!' The groundlings, second-year men who were not unmindful of Martin's own scoldings, tittered like small animals, and jarred him into raging. "'Well, I couldn't make out what you said, and it's the first time I ever fell down. I won't stand your talking to me like that.' "'You will stand anything I say, clumsy. You can take your hat and get out.' "'You mean I'm fired as assistant?' I'm glad you have enough intelligence to understand that, no matter how wretched I talk. Martin flung away. Gottlieb suddenly looked bewildered and took a step toward Martin's retreating back. But the class, the small giggling animals, they stood delighted, hoping for more. And Gottlieb shrugged, glared them into terror, sent the least awkward of them for the rabbits, and went on, curiously quiet and Martin, at Barney's dive, was hotly drinking the first of the whiskies which sent him wandering all night by himself. With each drink he admitted that he had an excellent chance to become a drunkard, and with each he boasted that he did not care. Had Leora been nearer than Wheatsylvania, twelve hundred miles away, he would have fled to her for salvation. He was still shaky next morning, and he had already taken a drink to make it possible to live through the morning when he received the note from Dean Silva bidding him report to the office at once. The dean lectured. Aerosmith, you've been discussed a good deal by the faculty council of late. Except in one or two courses, in my own I have no fault to find, you have been very inattentive. Your marks have been all right, but you could do still better." Recently, you have also been drinking. You have been seen in places of very low repute, and you have been intimate with a man who took it upon himself to insult me, the founder, our guests, and the university. Various faculty members have complained of your superior attitude, making fun of our courses right out in class. But Dr. Gottlieb has always warmly defended you. He insisted that you have a real flair for investigative science. Last night, however, he admitted that you had recently been impertinent to him. Now, unless you immediately turn over a new leaf, young man, I shall have to suspend you for the rest of the year, and if that doesn't do the work, I shall have to ask for your resignation. And I think it might be a good thing for your humility—you seem to have the pride of the devil, young man—it might be a good idea for you to see Dr. Gottlieb and start off your reformation by apologizing. It was the whiskey spoke, not Martin. I'm damned if I will. He can go to the devil. I've given him my life, and then he tattles on me. That's absolutely unfair to Dr. Gottlieb. He merely—sure, he merely let me down. 
I'll see him in hell before I'll apologize, after the way I've worked for him. And as for Cliff Clawson that you were hinting at, him, take it on himself to insult anybody? He just played a joke, and you went after his scalp. I'm glad he did it. Then Martin waited for the words that would end his scientific life. The little man, the rosy, pudgy, good little man, he stared and hummed and spoke softly. Aerosmith, I could fire you right now, of course, but I believe you have good stuff in you. I decline to let you go. Naturally, you're suspended at least till you come to your senses and apologize to me and to Gottlieb. He was fatherly. Almost he made Martin repent. But he concluded, And as for Clausen, his joke regarding this Benoni Carr person, and why I never looked the fellow up is beyond me, I suppose I was too busy. His joke, as you call it, was the action either of an idiot or a blackguard and until you are able to perceive that fact, I don't think you will be ready to come back to us. All right, said Martin, and left the room. He was very sorry for himself. The real tragedy, he felt, was that though Gottlieb had betrayed him and ended his career, ended the possibility of his mastering science and of marrying Leora, he still worshipped the man. He said goodbye to no one in Mohalis save his landlady. He packed, and it was a simple packing. He stuffed his books, his notes, a shabby suit, his inadequate linen, and his one glory, the dinner clothes, into his unwieldy imitation leather bag. He remembered with drunken tears the hour of buying the dinner jacket. Martin's money, from his father's tiny estate, came in bi-monthly checks from the bank at Elk Mills. He had now but six dollars. In Zenith, he left his bag at the interurban trolley station and sought Cliff, whom he found practicing eloquence over a beautiful pearl-gray motor hearse, in which a beer-fed undertaker was jovially interested. He waited sitting hunched and twisted on the steel running board of a limousine. He resented, but he was too listless to resent greatly, the stares of the other salesmen and the girl stenographers. Cliff dashed up, bumbling, "'Well, well, how's the boy? Come out and catch him little drink.' "'I could use one.' Martin knew that Cliff was staring at him. As they entered the bar of the Grand Hotel, with its paintings of lovely but absent-minded ladies, its mirrors, its thick marble rail along a mahogany bar, he blurted, "'Well, I got mine, too. Dad Silva's fired me for general footlessness. I'm going to bum around a little and then get some kind of a job. God, but I'm tired and nervous. Say, can you lend me some money?' "'You bet. All I've got. How much you want?' Guess I'll need a hundred dollars. May drift around quite some time. Golly, I haven't got that much, but probably I can raise it at the office. Here, sit down at this table and wait for me. How Cliff obtained the hundred dollars has never been explained, but he was back with it in a quarter hour. They went on to dinner, and Martin had much too much whiskey. Cliff took him to his own boarding house, which was decidedly less promissory of prosperity than Cliff's clothes, firmly gave him a cold bath to bring him to, and put him to bed. Next morning he offered to find a job for him, but Martin refused and left Zenith by the northbound train at noon. Always in America there remains from pioneer days a cheerful pariahdom of shabby young men who prowl causelessly from state to state, from gang to gang, in the power of the wanderlust. They wear black sateen shirts and carry bundles. They are not permanently tramps. They have hometowns to which they return, to work quietly in the factory or the section gang for a year, for a week, and as quietly to disappear again. They crowd the smoking cars at night. They sit silent on benches in filthy stations. They know all the land, yet of it they know nothing, 
because in a hundred cities they see only the employment agencies, the all-night lunches, the blind pigs, the scabrous lodging houses. Into that world of voyageurs, Martin vanished. Drinking steadily, only half-conscious of whither he was going, of what he desired to do, shamefully haunted by Leora and Cliff and the swift hands of Gottlieb, he flitted from Zenith to the city of Sparta, across to Ohio, up to Michigan, west to Illinois. His mind was a shambles. He could never quite remember, afterward, where he had been. Once, it is clear, he was soda fountain clerk in a minimigantic drugstore. Once, he must have been, for a week, dishwasher in the stench of a cheap restaurant. He wandered by freight trains, on blind baggages, on foot. To his fellow prospectors, he was known as Slim, the worst-tempered and most restless of all their company. After a time, a sense of direction began to appear in his crazy drifting. He was instinctively headed westward, and to the west, toward the long prairie dusk, Leora was waiting. For a day or two, he stopped drinking. He woke up feeling not like the sickly hobo called Slim, but like Martin Arrowsmith, and he pondered with his mind running clear. Why shouldn't I go back? Maybe this hasn't been so bad for me. I was working too hard. I was pretty high-strung. Blew up. Like to, uh, wonder what happened to my rabbits. Will they ever let me do research again? But to return to the university before he had seen Leora was impossible. His need of her was an obsession, making the rest of Earth absurd and worthless. He had, with blurry cunning, saved most of the hundred dollars he had taken from Cliff. He had lived, very badly, on grease-swimming stews and soda-reeking bread, by what he earned along the way. Suddenly, on no particular day, in no particular town in Wisconsin, he stalked to the station, bought a ticket to Wheatsylvania, North Dakota, and telegraphed to Leora, Coming 2.43 tomorrow, Wednesday, Sandy. Part 3 He crossed the wide Mississippi into Minnesota. He changed trains at St. Paul. He rolled into gusty vastness of snow, cut by thin lines of fence wire. He felt free, in release from the little fields of Winnemac and Ohio, in relaxation from the shaky nerves of midnight study and midnight booziness. He remembered his days of wire-stringing in Montana and regained that careless peace. Sunset was a surf of crimson, and by night, when he stepped from the choking railroad coach and tramped the platform at Sauk Center, he drank the icy air and looked up to the vast and solitary winter stars. The fan of the northern lights frightened and glorified the sky. He returned to the coach with the energy of that courageous land. He nodded and gurgled in brief smothering sleep. He sprawled on the seat and talked with friendly fellow vagrants. He drank bitter coffee and ate enormously of buckwheat cakes at a station restaurant. And so, changing at anonymous towns, he came at last to the squatty shelters, the two wheat elevators, the cattle pen, the oil tank, and the red box of a station with its slushy platform, which composed the outskirts of Wheatsylvania. Against the station, absurd in a huge coonskin coat, stood Leora. He must have looked a little mad as he stared at her from the vestibule, as he shivered with the wind. She lifted to him her two open hands, childish in red mittens. He ran down, he dropped his awkward bag on the platform, and unaware of the gaping furry farmers, they were lost in a kiss. Years after, in a tropic noon, he remembered the freshness of her wind-cooled cheeks. The train was gone, pounding out of the tiny station. It had stood like a dark wall beside the platform, protecting them, 
but now the light from the snowfields glared in on them and left them exposed and self-conscious. What? What's happened? she fluttered. No letters. I was so frightened. Off bumming, the dean suspended me, being fresh to profs. Do you care? Course not. If you wanted to, I've come to marry you. I don't see how we can, dearest, but... All right. There'll be a lovely row with Dad. She laughed. He's always so surprised and hurt when anything happens that he didn't plan out. It'll be nice to have you with me in the scrap, because you aren't supposed to know that he expects to plan out everything for everybody, and... Oh, Sandy, I've been so lonely for you. Mother isn't really a bit sick, not the least bit, but they go on keeping me here. I think probably somebody hinted to Dad that folks were saying he must be broke if his dear little daughter had to go off and learn nursing, and he hasn't worried it all out yet. It takes Andrew Jackson Tozer about a year to worry out anything. Oh, Sandy, you're here. After the clatter and jam of the train, the village seemed blankly empty. He could have walked around the borders of Wheatsylvania in ten minutes. Probably to Leora, one building differed from another. She appeared to distinguish between the general store of Norblum and that of Fraser and Lamb. But to Martin, the two-story wooden shacks creeping aimlessly along the wide main street were featureless and inappreciable. Then, there's our house, end of the next block, said Leora, as they turned the corner at the feed and implement store, and in a panic of embarrassment, Martin wanted to halt. He saw a storm coming, Mr. Tozer denouncing him as a failure who desired to ruin Leora, Mrs. Tozer weeping. "'Say, say, say, have you told him about me?' he stammered. "'Yes, sort of. I said you were a wonder in medic school, and maybe we'd get married when you finished your internship. And then when your wire came, they wanted to know why you were coming.' and why it was you wired from Wisconsin, and what color necktie you had on when you were sending the wire, and I couldn't make them understand. I didn't know. They discussed it. Quite a lot. They do discuss things. All through supper. Solemn. Oh, Sandy, do curse and swear some at meals. He was in a funk. Her parents, formerly amusing figures in a story, became oppressively real in sight of the wide, brown, porchy house. A large plate-glass window with a colored border had recently been cut through the wall as a sign of prosperity, and the garage was new and authoritative. He tagged after Leora, expecting the blast. Mrs. Tozer opened the door and stared at him plaintively. A thin, faded, unhumorous woman— she bowed as though he was not so much unwelcome as unexplained and doubtful. "'Will you show Mr. Aerosmith his room, Ori, or shall I?' she peeped. It was the kind of house that has a large phonograph but no books, and if there were any pictures, as beyond hope there must have been, Martin never remembered them. The bed in his room was lumpy, but covered with a chaste figured spread— and the flowery pitcher and bowl rested on a cover embroidered in red with lambs, frogs, water lilies, and a pious motto. He took as long as he could in unpacking things which needed no unpacking, and hesitated down the stairs. No one was in the parlor, which smelled of furnace heat and balsam pillows. Then, from nowhere apparent, Mrs. Tozer was there, worrying about him and trying to think of something polite to say. Did you have a comfortable trip on the train? Oh, yes, it was, well, it was pretty crowded. Oh, was it crowded? Yes, there were a lot of people traveling. Were there? I suppose, yes, sometimes I wonder where all the people can be going that you see going places all the time. Did you, was it very cold in the cities? in Minneapolis and St. Paul? Yes, it was pretty cold. 
Oh, was it cold? Mrs. Tozer was so still, so anxiously polite. He felt like a burglar taken for a guest, and intensely he wondered where Leora could be. She came in serenely, with coffee and a tremendous Swedish coffee ring, voluptuous with raisins and glistening brown sugar, and she had them talking, almost easily, about the coldness of winter and the value of Fords, when into the midst of all this brightness slid Mr. Andrew Jackson Tozer, and they drooped again to politeness. Mr. Tozer was as thin and undistinguished and sun-worn as his wife, and like her he peered, he kept silence, and fretted. He was astonished by everything in the world that did not bear on his grain elevator, his creamery, his tiny bank, the United Brethren Church, and the careful conduct of an overland car. It was not astounding that he should have become almost rich, for he accepted nothing that was not natural and convenient to Andrew Jackson Tozer. He hinted a desire to know whether Martin drank, how prosperous he was, and how he could possibly have come all this way from the urbanites of Winnemac. The Tozers were born in Illinois, but they had been in Dakota since childhood, and they regarded Wisconsin as the farthest, most perilous rim of the eastern horizon. They were so blank, so creepily polite, that Martin was able to avoid such unpleasant subjects as being suspended. He dandled an impression that he was an earnest young medic, who in no time at all would be making large and suitable sums of money for the support of their Leora. But as he was beginning to lean back in his chair, he was betrayed by the appearance of Leora's brother. Bert Tozer, Albert R. Tozer, cashier and vice president of the Wheatsylvania State Bank, auditor and vice president of the Tozer Grain and Storage Company, treasurer and vice president of the Star Creamery, was not in the least afflicted by the listening dubiousness of his parents. Bertie was a very articulate and modern man of affairs. He had buck teeth, and on his eyeglasses was a gold chain, leading to a dainty hook behind his left ear. He believed in town-boosting, organized motor tours, boy scouts, baseball, and the hanging of IWWs, and his most dolorous regret was that Wheatsylvania was too small— as yet, to have a YMCA or a commercial club. Plunging in beside him was his fiancée, Miss Ada Quist, daughter of the Feed and Implement store. Her nose was sharp, but not so sharp as her voice or the suspiciousness with which she faced Martin. "'This Aerosmith?' demanded Bert. "'Huh. Well, guess you're glad to be out here in God's country.' "'Yes, it's fine.' trouble with the eastern states is they haven't got the git or the room to grow. You ought to see a real Dakota harvest. Look here. How come you're away from school this time of year? Why, I know all about school terms. I went to business college in Grand Forks. How come you can get away now? I took a little layoff. Leora says you and her are thinking of getting married. We... Got any cash outside your school money? I have not. Thought so. How'd you expect to support a wife? I suppose I'll be practicing medicine some day. Some day? Then what's the use of talking about being engaged till you can support a wife? That, interrupted Bert's lady love, Miss Ada Quist. That's just what I said, Ori. She seemed to speak with her pointed nose as much as with her button of a mouth. If Bert and I can wait, I guess other people can. Mrs. Tozer whimpered. Don't be too hard on Mr. Aerosmith, Bertie. I'm sure he wants to do the right thing. I'm not being hard on anybody. I'm being sensible. If Pa and you would tend to things instead of standing around fussing, I wouldn't have to butt in. I don't believe in interfering with anybody else's doings, or anybody interfering with mine. Live and let live and mind your own business is my motto, and that's what I said to Alec Ingleblad the other day when I was in there having a shave, and he was trying to get funny about our holding so many mortgages, 
but I'll be blamed if I'm going to allow a fellow that I don't know anything about to come snooping around my sister till I find out something about his prospects. Leora crooned. Bertie Lamb, your tie is climbing your collar again. Yes, and you, Ori, shrieked Bert. If it wasn't for me, you'd have married Sam Pechek two years ago. Bert further said, with instances and illustrations, that she was light-minded, and as for nursing, nursing. She said that Bert was what he was, and tried to explain to Martin the matter of Sam Pechek. It has never yet been altogether explained. Ada Quiss said that Leora did not care if she broke her dear parents' hearts and ruined Bert's career. Martin said, Look here, I... and never got farther. Mr. and Mrs. Tozer said they were all to be calm, and of course Bert didn't mean... But really, it was true. They had to be sensible. And how Mr. Aerosmith could expect to support a wife... The conference lasted till 9.30, which, as Mr. Tozer pointed out, was everybody's bedtime, and except for the five-minute discussion as to whether Miss Ada Quist was to stay to supper and the debate on the saltiness of this last corned beef, they clave faithfully to the inquiry as to whether Martin and Leora was engaged. All persons interested, which apparently did not include Martin and Leora, decided that they were not. Bert ushered Martin upstairs. He saw to it that the lovers should not have a chance for a goodnight kiss, and until Mr. Tozer called down the hall at seven minutes after ten, "'You going to stay up and chew the rag the whole blessed night, Bert?' He made himself agreeable by sitting on Martin's bed, looking derisively at his shabby baggage, and demanding the details of his parentage, religion, politics, and attitude toward the horrors of card-playing and dancing. At breakfast, they all hoped that Martin would stay one more night in their home. Plenty of room. Bert stated that Martin would come downtown at ten and be shown the bank, creamery, and wheat elevator. But at ten, Martin and Leora were on the eastbound train. They got out at the county seat, Leopolis, a vast city of four thousand population, with a three-story building. At one that afternoon, they were married, by the German Lutheran pastor. His study was a bareness surrounding a large, rusty wood stove, and the witnesses, the pastor's wife, and an old German who had been shoveling walks, sat on the wood box and looked drowsy. Not till they had caught the afternoon train for Wheatsylvania did Martin and Leora escape from the ghostly apprehension which had hunted them all day. In the fetid train, huddled close, hands locked, innocently free of the alienation which the pomposity of weddings sometimes casts between lovers, they sighed, Now what are we going to do? What are we going to do? At the Wheatsylvania station, they were met by the whole family, rampant. Bert had suspected elopement. He had searched half a dozen towns by long-distance telephone and got through to the county clerk just after the license had been granted. It did not soften Bert's mood to have the clerk remark that if Martin and Leora were of age, there was nothing he could do, and he didn't care a damn who's talking. I'm running this office. Bert had come to the station determined to make Martin perfect, even as Bert Tozer was perfect, and to do it right now. It was a dreadful evening in the Tozer mansion. Mr. Tozer said, with length, that Martin had undertaken responsibilities. Mrs. Tozer wept, and said that she hoped Ori had not, for certain reasons, had to be married. Bert said that if such was the case, He'd kill Martin. Ada Quist said that Ori could now see what came of pride and boasting about going off to her old zenith. Mr. Tozer said that there was one good thing about it anyway. Ori could see for herself that they couldn't let her go back to nursing school and get into more difficulties. Martin, from time to time, offered remarks to the effect that he was a good young man, a wonderful bacteriologist, 
and able to take care of his wife. But no one, save Leora, listened. Bert further propounded, while his father squeaked, now don't be too hard on the boy, that if Martin thought for one single second that he was going to get one red cent out of the Tozers because he'd gone and butted in where nobody'd invited him, he, Bert, wanted to know about it. That was all. He certainly wanted to know about it. And Leora watched them, turning her little head from one to another. Once she came over to press Martin's hand. In the roughest of the storm, when Martin was beginning to glare, she drew from a mysterious pocket a box of very bad cigarettes and lighted one. None of the Tozers had discovered that she smoked. Whatever they thought about her sex morals, her infidelity to united brethrenism, and her general dementia, they had not suspected that she could commit such an obscenity as smoking. They charged on her, and Martin caught his breath savagely. During these fulminations, Mr. Tozer had somehow made up his mind. He could at times take the lead away from Bert, whom he considered useful but slightly indiscreet and unable to grasp the full value of a dollar. Mr. Tozer valued it at one dollar and ninety, but the progressive Bert at scarce more than one fifty. Mr. Tozer mildly gave orders. They were to stop scrapping. They had no proof that Martin was necessarily a bad match for Ori. They would see. Martin would return to medical school at once, and be a good boy, and get through as quickly as he could, and begin to earn money. Ori would remain at home and behave herself. And she certainly would never act like a bad woman again and smoke cigarettes. Meantime, Martin and she would have no, uh, relations. Mrs. Tozer looked embarrassed, and the hungrily attentive Ada Quist tried to blush. They could write to each other once a week, but that was all. They would in no way, uh, act as though they were married till he gave permission. Well, he demanded. Doubtless, Martin should have defied them and with his pride in his arms have gone forth into the night. But it seemed only a moment to graduation, to beginning his practice. He had Leora now, forever. For her, he must be sensible. He would return to work and be practical. Gottlieb's ideals of science, laboratories, research, rot. All right, he said. It did not occur to him that their abstention from love began tonight. It did not come to him till, holding out his hands to Leora, smiling with virtue at having determined to be prudent, he heard Mr. Tozer cackling, Ori, you go on up to bed now, in your own room. That was his bridal night, tossing in his bed ten yards from her. Once he heard a door open and thrilled to her coming. He waited, taut. She did not come. He peeped out, determined to find her room. His deep feeling about his brother-in-law suddenly increased. Bert was parading the hall on guard. Had Bert been more formidable, Martin might have killed him, but he could not face that buck-toothed and nickering righteousness. He lay and resolved to curse them all in the morning and go off with Leora, but with the coming of the three o'clock depression, he perceived that with him she would probably starve, that he was disgraced, and that it was not at all certain he would not become a drunkard. Poor kid! I'm not going to spoil her life. God, I do love her. I'm going back, and the way I'm going to work. Can I stand this? That was his bridal night and the barren dawn. Three days later, he was walking into the office of Dr. Silva, dean of the Winnemac Medical School. Chapter 10 Dean Silva's secretary looked up delightedly. She hearkened with anticipation. But Martin said meekly, Please, could I see the dean? And meekly he waited, 
in the row of oak chairs beneath the Dawson-Hunziker pharmaceutical calendar. When he had gone solemnly through the ground-glass door to the dean's office, he found Dr. Silva glowering. Seated, the little man seemed large, so domed was his head, so full his rounding mustache. "'Well, sir,' Martin pleaded, "'I'd like to come back, if you'll let me. "'Honest, I do apologize to you, "'and I'll go to Dr. Gottlieb and apologize. "'Though honest, I can't lay down on Cliff Clausen.' "'Dr. Silva bounced up from his chair, bristling. "'Martin braced himself. "'Wasn't he welcome? "'Had he no home, anywhere? "'He could not fight.' He had no more courage. He was so tired after the drab journey, after restraining himself from flaring out at the tozers. He was so tired. He looked wistfully at the dean. The little man chuckled. Never mind, boy. It's all right. We're glad you're back. Bother the apologies. I just wanted you to do whatever'd buck you up. It's good to have you back. I believed in you and then I thought perhaps we'd lost you. Clumsy old man. Martin was sobbing, too weak for restraint, too lonely and too weak, and Dr. Silva soothed. Let's just go over everything and find out where the trouble was. What can I do? Understand, Martin, the thing I want most in life is to help give the world as many good physicians, great healers, as I can. What started your nervousness? Where have you been? When Martin came to Leora and his marriage, Silva purred, I'm delighted. She sounds like a splendid girl. Well, we must try and get you into Zenith General for your internship a year from now and make you able to support her properly. Martin remembered how often, how astringently, Gottlieb had sneered at these merry vetting or jail bells. He went away, Silva's disciple. He went away to study furiously, and the brilliant insanity of Max Gottlieb's genius vanished from his faith. Part 2 Leora wrote that she had been dropped from the school of nursing for over-absence and for being married. She suspected that it was her father who had informed the hospital authorities. Then, it appeared, she had secretly sent for a shorthand book, and, on pretense of helping Bert, she was using the typewriter in the bank, hoping that by next autumn she could join Martin and earn her own living as a stenographer. Once he offered to give up medicine, to take what work he could find and send for her. She refused. Though in his service to Leora and to the new god, Dean Silva, he had become austere, denying himself whiskey, learning page on page of medicine with a frozen fury. He was always in a vacuum of desire for her, and always he ran the last block to his boarding house, looking for a letter from her. Suddenly he had a plan. He had tasted shame. This one last shame would not matter. He would flee to her in Easter vacation. He would compel Tozer to support her while she studied stenography in Zenith. He would have her near him through the last year. He paid Cliff the borrowed hundred when the bi-monthly check came from Elk Mills and calculated his finances to the penny. By not buying the suit he distressingly needed, he could manage it. Then for a month and more he had but two meals a day, and of those meals one was bread and butter and coffee. He washed his own linen in the bathtub, and, except for occasional fiercely delightful yieldings, he did not smoke. His return to Wheatsylvania was like his first flight, except that he talked less with fellow tramps, and all the way, between uneasy naps in the red plush seats of coaches, he studied the bulky books of gynecology and internal medicine. He had written certain instructions to Leora. He met her on the edge of Wheatsylvania, and they had a moment's talk, a resolute kiss. News spreads not slowly in Wheatsylvania. There is a certain interest in other people's affairs, 
and the eyes of citizens whose existence Martin did not know had followed him from his arrival. When the culprits reached the bone-littered castle of the Tozer Ogres, Leora's father and brother were already there and raging. Old Andrew Jackson cried out upon them. He said that conceivably it may not have been insane in Martin to have run away from school once, but to go and sneak back this second time was absolutely plumb crazy. Through his tirade, Martin and Leora smiled confidently. From Bert, By God, sir, this is too much. Bert had been reading fiction. I object to the use of profanity, but when you come and annoy my sister a second time, all I can say is, By God, sir, this is too blame much. Martin looked meditatively out of the window. He noticed three people strolling the muddy street. They all viewed the Tozer house with hopeful interest. Then he spoke steadily. Mr. Tozer, I've been working hard. Everything has gone fine. But I've decided I don't care to live without my wife. I've come to take her back. Legally, you can't prevent me. I'll admit, without any argument, I can't support her yet if I stay in the university. She's going to study stenography. She'll be supporting herself in a few months, and meanwhile, I expect you to be decent enough to send her money. This is too much, said Tozer, and Bert carried it on. Fellow not only practically ruins a girl, but comes and demands that we support her for him. All right, just as you want. In the long run, it'll be better for her and for me and for you if I finish medic school and have my profession. But if you won't take care of her, I'll chuck school. I'll go to work. Oh, I'll support her all right. Only, you'll never see her again. If you go on being idiots, she and I will leave here on the night train for the coast, and that'll be the end. For the first time in his centuries of debate with the Tozers, he was melodramatic. He shook his fist under Bert's nose. And if you try to prevent our going, God help you, and the way this town will laugh at you. How about it, Leora? Are you ready to go away with me, forever? Yes, she said. They discussed it greatly. Tozer and Bert struck attitudes of defense. They couldn't, they said, be bullied by anybody. Also, Martin was an adventurer, and how did Leora know he wasn't planning to live on the money they sent her? In the end, they crawled. They decided that this new, mature Martin, this new, hard-eyed Leora, were ready to throw away everything for each other. Mr. Tozer whined a good deal and promised to send her $70 a month till she should be prepared for office work. At the Wheatsylvania station, looking from the train window, Martin realized that this anxious-eyed, lip-puckering Andrew Jackson Tozer did love his daughter, did mourn her going. Part 3 he found for Leora a room on the frayed northern edge of Zenith, miles nearer Mohalis and the university than her hospital had been. A square white and blue room with blotchy but shoulder-wise chairs. It looked out on breezy, stubbly wasteland, reaching to distant, glittering railroad tracks. The landlady was a round German woman with an eye for romance. It is doubtful if she ever believed they were married. She was a good woman. Leora's trunk had come. Her stenography books were primly set out on her little table, and her pink felt slippers were arranged beneath the white iron bed. Martin stood with her at the window, mad with the pride of proprietorship. Suddenly he was so weak, so tired, that the mysterious cement which holds cell to cell seemed dissolved and he felt that he was collapsing. But with knees rigidly straightening, his head back, his lips tight across his teeth, he caught himself and cried, Our first home. That he should be with her, quiet, none disturbing, was intoxication. 
the commonplace room shone with peculiar light. The vigorous weeds and rough grass of the wasteland were radiant under the April sun, and sparrows were cheeping. Yes, said Leora, with voice, then hungry lips. Part 4 Leora attended the Zenith University of Business Administration and Finance, which title indicated that it was a large and quite reasonably bad school for stenographers, bookkeepers, and such sons of Zenith brewers and politicians as were unable to enter even state universities. She trotted daily to the car line, a neat, childish figure with notebooks and sharpened pencils, to vanish in the horde of students. It was six months before she had learned enough stenography to obtain a place in an insurance office. Till Martin graduated, they kept that room, their home, ever dearer. No one was so domestic as these birds of passage. At least two evenings a week, Martin dashed in from Mohalis and studied there. She had a genius for keeping out of his way, for not demanding to be noticed, so that, while he plunged into his books as he never had done in Cliff's rustling, grunting, expectorating company, he had ever the warm, half-conscious feeling of her presence. Sometimes, at midnight, just as he began to realize that he was hungry, he would find that a plate of sandwiches had by silent magic appeared at his elbow. He was none the less affectionate because he did not comment. She made him secure. She shut out the world that had pounded at him. On their walks at dinner, in the dissolute and deliciously wasteful quarter hour when they sat on the edge of the bed with comforters wrapped about them and smoked an inexcusable cigarette before breakfast, he explained his work to her. And when her own studying was done, she tried to read whichever of his books was not in use. Knowing nothing, never learning much of the actual details of medicine, yet she understood, better it may be than Angus Dewar, his philosophy and the basis of his work. If he had given up Gottlieb worship and his yearning for the laboratory as for a sanctuary, if he had resolved to be a practical and wealth-mastering doctor, yet something of Gottlieb's spirit remained. He wanted to look behind details and impressive-sounding lists of technical terms for the causes of things, for general rules which might reduce the chaos of dissimilar and contradictory symptoms to the orderliness of chemistry. Saturday evening they went solemnly to the motion pictures, one and two real films with cowboy Billy Anderson and a girl later to be famous as Mary Pickford, and solemnly they discussed the non-existent plots as they returned, unconscious of other people on the streets. But when they walked into the country on a Sunday, with four sandwiches and a bottle of ginger ale in his threadbare pockets, he chased her uphill and down gully, and they lost their solemnity in joyous childishness. He intended, when he came to her room in the evening, to catch the owl car to Mohalis and be near his work when he woke in the morning. He was resolute about it, always, and she admired his efficiency. But he never caught the car. The crew of the six o'clock morning interurban became used to a pale, quick-moving young man who sat hunched in a back seat, devouring large red books, absolutely gnawing a rather dreadful doughnut. But in this young man there was none of the heaviness of workers dragged out of bed at dawn for another gray and futile day of labor. He appeared curiously determined, curiously content. It was all so much easier, now that he was partly freed from the tyrannical honesty of Gottliebism, from the unswerving quest for causes, which, as it drove through layer below layer, seemed ever farther from the bottommost principles, from the intolerable strain of learning day by day how much he did not know. It warmed him to escape from Gottlieb's icebox into Dean Silva's neighborly world.
Now and then he saw Gottlieb on the campus. They bowed in embarrassment and passed in haste. Part 5 There seemed to be no division between his junior and senior years. Because of the time he had lost, he had to remain in Mohalis all summer. The year and a half from his marriage to his graduation was one of whirling bewilderment, without seasons or dates. When he had, as they put it, cut out his nonsense and buckled down to work, he had won the admiration of Dr. Silva and all the good students, especially Angus Dewar and the Reverend Ira Hinckley. Martin had always announced that he did not care for their approbation, for the applause of commonplace drudges. But now that he had it, he prized it. However much he scoffed, he was gratified when he was treated as a peer by Angus, who spent the summer as extern in the Zenith General Hospital, and who already had the unapproachable dignity of a successful young surgeon. Through that hot summer, Martin and Leora labored, panting, and when they sat in her room, over their books and a stout pot of beer, neither their costumes nor their language had the decorum which one ought to expect from a romantic pair devoted to science and high endeavor. They were not very modest. Leora came to use, in her casual way, such words, such ancient Anglo-Saxon monosyllables, as would have dismayed Angus or Bert Tozer. On their evenings off, they went economically to an imitation Coney Island beside a scummy and stinking lake, and with grave pleasure they ate hot dogs. Painstakingly, they rode the scenic railway. Their chief appetizer was Cliff Clawson. Cliff was never willingly alone or silent, except when he was asleep. It is probable that his success in motor salesmanship came entirely from his fondness for the enormous amounts of bright conversation which seemed necessary in that occupation. How much of his attention to Martin and Leora was friendliness, and how much of it was due to his fear of being alone, cannot be determined. But certainly he entertained them and drew them out of themselves— and never seemed offended by the surly unwillingness with which Martin was sometimes guilty of greeting him. He would come roaring up to the house in a motor, the muffler always cut out. He would shout at their window, "'Come on, you guys! Come out of it! Shake a leg! Let's have a little drive and get cooled off, and then I'll buy you a feed!' That Martin had to work, Cliff never comprehended." There was small excuse for Martin's occasional brutality in showing his annoyance. But, now that he was fulfilled in Leora, and quite thoroughly and selfishly careless as to what hungry need others might have of himself, now that he was in a rut of industry and satisfied companionship, he was bored by Cliff's unchanging flood of heavy humor. It was Leora who was courteous. She had heard rather too often the seven jokes which, under varying guises, made up all of Cliff's humor and philosophy. But she could sit for hours looking amiable while Cliff told how clever he was at selling, and she sturdily reminded Martin that they would never have a friend more loyal or generous. But Cliff went to New York, to a new motor agency, and Martin and Leora were more completely and happily dependent on each other than ever before. Their last agitation was removed by the complacence of Mr. Tozer. He was cordial now in all his letters, however much he irritated them by the parental advice with which he penalized them for every check he sent. Part 6 None of the hectic activities of senior year, neurology and pediatrics, practical work in obstetrics, taking of case histories in the hospitals, attendance on operations, dressing wounds, learning not to look embarrassed when charity patients called one doctor, was quite so important as the discussion of, what shall we do after graduation? Is it necessary to be an intern for more than a year? Shall we remain general practitioners all our lives, or work toward becoming specialists? Which specialties are the best, that is, 
the best paid? Shall we settle in the country or in the city? How about going west? What about the Army Medical Corps? Salutes, riding boots, pretty women, travel? This discussion they harried in the corridors of Maine Medical, at the hospital, at lunchrooms, and when Martin came home to Leora, he went through it all again, very learnedly, very explanatory. Almost every evening he reached a decision, which was undecided again by morning. Once, when Dr. Loiseau, professor of surgery, had operated before a clinic which included several renowned visiting doctors, the small white figure of the surgeon below them, slashing between life and death, dramatic as a great actor taking his curtain call, Martin came away certain that he was for surgery. He agreed then with Angus Dewar, who had just won the Hugh Loiseau Medal in Experimental Surgery, that the operator was the lion, the eagle, soldier among doctors. Angus was one of the few who knew without wavering precisely what he was going to do. After his internship, he was to join the celebrated Chicago clinic headed by Dr. Rounsfield, the eminent abdominal surgeon. He would, he said briefly, be making 20000 a year as a surgeon within five years. Martin explained it all to Leora. Surgery, drama, fearless nerves, adoring assistants, save lives, science in devising new techniques, make money, not be commercial, of course, but provide Leora with comforts. To Europe, they two together, grey London, Viennese cafes. Leora was useful to him during his oration. She blandly agreed. And the next evening, when he sought to prove that surgery was all rot and most surgeons merely good carpenters, she agreed more amiably than ever. Next to Angus and the future medical missionary Ira Hinckley, Fatty Faff was the first to discover what his future was. He was going to be an obstetrician, or, as the medical students called it technically, a baby-snatcher. Fatty had the soul of a midwife. He sympathized with women in their gasping agony, sympathized honestly and almost tearfully, and he was magnificent at sitting still and drinking tea and waiting. During his first obstetrical case, when the student with him was merely nervous as they fidgeted by the bed in the hard desolation of the hospital room, Fatty was terrified, and he longed as he had never longed for anything in his flabby yet wistful life to comfort this gray-faced, straining, unknown woman, to take her pains on himself. While the others drifted, often by chance, often through relatives, into their various classes, Martin remained doubtful. He admired Dean Silva's insistence on the physician's immediate service to mankind, but he could not forget the cool, ascetic hours in the laboratory. Toward the end of senior year, decision became necessary, and he was moved by a speech in which Dean Silva condemned too much specialization, and pictured the fine old country doctor, priest and father of his people, sane under open skies, serene in self-conquest. On top of this came urgent letters from Mr. Tozer, begging Martin to settle in Wheatsylvania. Tozer loved his daughter, apparently, and more or less liked Martin, and he wanted them near him. Wheatsylvania was a good location, he said, solid Scandinavian and Dutch and German and Bohemian farmers who paid their bills. The nearest doctor was Hesselink, at Groningen, nine and a half miles away, and Hesselink had more than he could do. If they would come, he would help Martin buy his equipment. He would even send him a check now and then during his two-year hospital internship. Martin's capital was practically gone. Angus Dewar and he had received appointments to Zenith General Hospital, where he would have an incomparable training. But Zenith General gave its interns, for the first year, nothing but board and room, and he had feared that he could not take the appointment. Tozer's offer excited him. 
All night, Leora and he sat up working themselves into enthusiasm about the freedom of the West, about the kind hearts and friendly hands of the pioneers, about the heroism and usefulness of country doctors. And this time, they reached a decision which remained decided. They would settle in Wheatsylvania. If he ached a little for research and Gottlieb's divine curiosity, well, he would be such a country doctor as Robert Koch. He would not degenerate into a bridge-playing, duck-hunting drone. He would have a small laboratory of his own. So he came to the end of the year and graduated, looking rather flustered in his cap and gown. Angus stood first and Martin seventh in the class. He said goodbye with lamentations and considerable beer. He found a room for Leora nearer to the hospital and he emerged as Martin L. Aerosmith, M.D., house physician in the Zenith General Hospital.